BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. With more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we go deep on the science of personality. We look at how we've moved way beyond the debate of nature versus nurture. We look at the myth of authenticity and the danger of just being yourself. We examine why human well-being, aka success, depends on the sustainable pursuit of core projects in our lives. We explore the complex dance of self-improvement between the limitations of biological, social factors, and the identity of us as individuals. And we look at how much agency and control we really have in shaping our personalities and lives among all of these different factors with our guest, Dr. Brian Little. Do you need more time, time for work, time for thinking and reading, time for the people in your life, time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. 
In our previous episode, we showed how you can decode scientific studies and spot bad science by digging deep into the tools and skills you need to be an educated consumer of scientific information. Are you tired of seeing seemingly outrageous studies published in the news only to see the exact opposite published a week later? What makes scientific research useful and valid? How can you, as a non-scientist, read and understand scientific information in a simple and straightforward way that can help you get closer to the truth and then apply those lessons to your life? We discussed that and much more with our previous guest, Dr. Brian Nosick. If you want to be an educated consumer of scientific information, check out that episode. Now for our interview with Brian Little. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show, Dr. Brian Little. Brian is an internationally acclaimed scholar and speaker in the field of personality and motivational psychology. He's currently a research professor at Cambridge University, where he's a fellow of the Wellbeing Institute and director of the Social Ecology Research Group in the Department of Psychology. He was previously voted the favorite professor of Harvard's graduating class three years in a row, and his work has been featured in Time Magazine, the TED Stage, and much more. Brian, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you, Matt. Delighted to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. And to start out, I'd love to kind of dig into, you know, obviously you're an expert in in sort of personality and, and what makes us ourselves, I'd like to start out with one of the, you know, things that you've talked about and written about a lot, which is which is kind of the field of trait psychology and sort of the fundamentals of the kind of big five personality trait model and how that works. Yeah, happy to do that. For a while, trait psychology was very much um, the dominant perspective in studying human personality. And then in 1968, a, a book was written by Walter Mischel that really challenge the whole notion of whether there are stable traits of personality. And then subsequent to that, there was a kind of renaissance of work on personality and on how traits do have predictive validity, and that it isn't nonsensical to talk about our personality traits. And it is in that context of a revitalized trait psychology that the work of uh, my own work and that of my colleagues and students is is placed. And in this renewed personality trait psychology, the big five is the most dominant perspective. And it um, postulates uh, that each of us can be placed on five spectra that represent the big five traits and these traits are, they, they spell out an acronym. So it, it spells out OCEAN, O, uh, openness to experience, C, conscientiousness, E, extroversion, A, agreeableness, and N, neuroticism. And there are many challenges to the big five, but it is still the dominant perspective. One of the challenges suggests that there is a, a sixth factor, which might be called honesty and humility, and that is differentiated from the others. Now, what's exciting about the big five is that they are predictive, your score on these scales, predict consequential outcomes that are really important, such as whether you're likely to be divorced or whether you do well in your organization or in terms of the overall theme of this program, whether you're likely to experience success and what kind of success you're likely to experience. So, for example, the difference between openness and conscientiousness is each can predict success, 
but those who are open to experience are more likely to find success in creative, uh, innovative spheres, whereas those who are conscientious are much more likely to find them in fields that are more conventional, in answering questions to which there is an answer, whereas the more open individuals explore questions uh, that are new and, and are themselves innovative. And so each of the other dimensions, extroversion, agreeableness, and, and neuroticism, or its obverse uh, stability, are highly consequential. And I'm, I'd be happy to go through each of them in, in more detail, but that's the bare bones of what uh, the Big Five Traits uh, is about. They're relatively stable. They have consequential outcomes that matter for people's lives, and they get us up to the starting point but not all the way through to understanding who you are as a person. So I do want to dig in a little bit, and there's a couple different kind of pieces I'd like to explore. One, you know, I'd love to, you know, hear a little bit more about some of the sort of kind of research examples or implications of how the big five can predict life outcomes, you know, 10, 20 years down the road. And then the second piece I'd like to dig into maybe after that is, is, learn a little bit more about kind of the different paths of success of somebody who, you know, is sort of more operating out of openness versus somebody who's kind of operating out of conscientiousness. Yeah. First of all, the long-term predictions. One of the most interesting of these is the trait of conscientiousness. It is a very good predictor, as you might expect, of promotion in, in your workplace, of um, relative success uh, in university. And yet, perhaps more surprisingly, conscientiousness is more likely than other traits to predict health and success in the future. And even, and I find this most interesting, it even is a good predictor of, um, of premature death. And so conscientiousness, just to flesh it out a little bit, is a tendency to get things done, to get them done on time, to be responsible. And we can understand why that plays out well in our organizations, but why would it affect our health? And I think this is probably due to the fact that highly conscientious people who are able to self-regulate are more likely to follow through on health advice from their physicians, for example. They stick with the health regimen. They count those calories. And consequently, they live longer and they're healthier uh, throughout most of their of their lives. And so that's a consequential outcome that I think uh, plays out into our futures and actually may, may impact the length of those futures. The other example is on agreeableness. Now, agreeableness is, is at the positive end, is the kind of person who is, is, well, agreeable, pleasant. They don't like conflict, and so they do things in groups or in relationships which will subvert conflict and get around it, sometimes in very subtle ways. And the lower end of that, uh, disagreeable people, also have a risk factor for their health. Um, the evidence is pretty clear that low agreeableness poses risks uh, for coronary heart disease. And the reason uh, for this is you may remember the old work on type A personality, the person who uh, is trying to get ahead and push, 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 push. And it was often thought that it was that hurry sickness that was the predictor of cardiac risk, but it seems not to be that. 
the behavioral pathogen appears to be hostility. And hostility is the core component underlying um, both type A behavior, and it is related to scoring low on agreeableness on the big five. So again, you have a personality trait with long-term implications for the way our lives go that I think it's helpful to know about. And I think in terms of the subtleties, you may take somebody else who's quite active, an extrovert. They need stimulation. They love to have stimulants and they react well to stimulants because uh, neocortically they they have a tendency not to be as arousable. So they need to have uh, stimulation in their field in their environment or by the ingestion of stimulants of some sort, um, they can be seen as irrepressible and and so on. And it may well be that you have a partner who is very extroverted and you may worry that they're overdoing it. They're working crazy hours. They're working 70 hours a week. They're push, push, push. And you may think that they need to slow down and you force them to go to the Caribbean for a week. And there they are, checking their email, and you're tempted to say, and you might say, good, stop, stop right now. Look at me. You're going to kill yourself. Now, the paradox there, the subtlety there, is that person may simply be extroverted and, and not disagreeable. They may not have that hostility that the real coronary-prone person has. And so the subtlety here is by by loving them and trying to get them to slow down to improve their health. You may actually increase their hostility. And so I think that we need to be very careful when we interact with our loved ones and our colleagues that we understand the full spectrum of their personality uh, dispositions when we're trying to uh, do well by them and do good for them. So let's come back to this kind of the different paths of success. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how people with kind of high openness find success in life versus how people with high conscientiousness find success. Yeah, the uh, high open to experience person loves exploration. They have um, what I call alacrity. They're keen. When you mention something to them that sounds interesting, they throw themselves into it. They are, as I mentioned earlier, they tend to do well in fields that require creative problem solving. Um, there, there have been some wonderful studies, uh, mainly out of uh, the University of California, Berkeley, on creative individuals. And one of the most clearly emerging patterns of what these giants of creativity, I mean, in architecture, we're talking people like Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, these are, he actually did not appear, he was unable to, but people of his rank were studied and were compared with individuals who were not rated as, as creative as them in their fields, architecture, arts, science, technology, and novelists, and so on. But they were in the same kind of firms if they were architects. So you had a nice control group there. You had the highly creative ones. You had partners in the same firms that were not creative, and you looked at their personality. And the, one of the best predictors of the creative individuals was their openness to experience. What's interesting about openness to experience is that, is that when it comes to emotions, 
It means that you're very open to negative emotions, but also positive emotions. And so you have individuals high in openness to experience who are willing to accept and register in their daily lives that they're anxious, that that they're depressed, that they're feeling a bit vulnerable, that they're sort of self-conscious about how things are going right now. These are aspects of negative emotion. But you also uh, see in the highly creative people that they're over the moon joyful when things progress. That they 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 can be cheery. They they have aesthetic chills. Uh, one of the best unique features of open to experience individuals is they experience what we call pilo erections. These are these are your hair standing up when you at the back of your neck when you're listening to your favorite piece of music, um, and so. The interesting feature of of those who are open to experience is that they may be seen as being very emotional, very up and down in, in in their moods, passionate, perhaps is another word for it. And this can lead them both to extraordinary success in their emotion driven creative work, but they can also be a real pain in the neck to work with. And so they require individuals who are perhaps more conscientious, to check the bank balance in that major um, architectural project, um, to check the provision of elements for the creative acts in theater or whatever it might be, to check that your research grants are coming through in the field of science. And so one of the features of, of one of my books on Me, Myself, and Us is that there's a bit of a myth of the creative hero that we think of highly creative individuals as being beyond um, the norm and, and emergent at a level where they cannot be compared to the normal person. I'm more interested in not the creative hero, but the creative project, the, the, the creative outcropping of those creative individuals. And they cannot occur, will not occur, without the concurrence of individuals who will tell you that the bank account's low, that they'll double check the things you need to do, that will tell you if your fly is open when you're going to the bank manager for a loan. And so it's the interplay of these different personalities that I find uh, particularly intriguing and, and that we need to be mindful of before we say there are good people, bad people. Personality and their, the expression of personalities is a social ecology we draw from and contribute to the pursuits of others. In some sense, it's almost like the sort of classic kind of artistic stereotype, and that makes a lot of sense. I- I'm curious, you know, we've talked a lot about the, these sort of big five personality traits and, and how they can impact and predict life outcomes. How sort of immutable are these traits or, or how changeable are they? It's a source of considerable research interest right, right now. In one sense, they're fairly stable. If you look at the kids in, in kindergarten who were the outgoing extroverted ones, relative to their peer group, when you come back for your school reunion, they're still relative to their peer group. The outgoing extroverted ones and the shy ones still tend to be a little bit shy and and so on. So there is this what we call rank order stability across the the decade. That doesn't mean that individuals may not change. In fact, much of my own research has been looking at and how we may change from, let's say, being an introverted person into being more extroverted. And and why do we do this? 
I coined the term free traits to discuss the, the characteristics or depict the characteristics of individuals who are biologically introverted, let us say, but whose actions appear to be very extroverted. And I use myself as an example that I've been, as you said in your introduction, very, very uh, graciously, that uh, I, I received some recognition for my teaching. And in the first couple of lectures, my students certainly don't think I'm introverted. But biogenically, which is the term I use to subsume genetic and evolutionary and biochemical and other features of personality, biogenically, I'm very introverted. Um, one of the features that you can tell about introverts is that they don't handle stimulation in the same way as more extroverted people do, so that if I have caffeine late in the afternoon, I can't sleep at night, whereas a more extroverted person is, is relatively unaffected by that. And so what I find is that my trait expression and the trait expressions of the people listening to this program can often be shaped not just by your biogenic dispositions, but by the things that really matter to you, what I call your personal projects in your life. And my personal or personal projects is being a professor. And it seems to me that as a professor, I'm called upon to profess, which means to convey with passion what I believe to be true, no holds barred. So when I talk to my students early in the morning uh, and they've been up all night drinking milk, I need to engage them and have them not fall asleep or fall further asleep. And so I'll do it. And I do it because I love my field and I love my students and I love to expose them to what I find is exciting in our research. I can do that fairly easily now because I've had decades and decades of experience doing it. But people who, who act out of character in this way uh, may run the risk of burning out. A naturally extroverted person can put on a, an entertaining lecture and not necessarily feel any cost for that. But those who act out of character can experience uh, a cost. And uh, it works with the other big five traits. You may be naturally um, a very agreeable person, but you have a parent who needs to go into a care facility and you're getting uh, stymied at every turn. And so for all of March, you need to act as a disagreeable person. And you do so. And it, it's hard for you because you're naturally very, very sweet. But you do it. And it, it raises the question, why do we engage in this kind of behavior? And as I say, I think it's because of the core projects in our lives. And we act out of character for professional reasons, and we also act out of character for love. And so a guy who is trying to um, put on a great um, birthday party for his kid is likely to act out of character, even if he is introverted, as a good time dad who is uh, really enjoying the party. After the party, he's ready to go into uh, his room and just sort of collapse. And this is part of what makes us human, I think. This is where I think, as I mentioned before, that the study of our traits gets us into the study of human personality, but it doesn't take us all the way in. 
to look all the way in. We need to look at these core projects in our lives, uh, to look at um, how we sometimes act out of character, to look at how we sometimes bend to accommodate to the social expectations, the professional expectations, the expectations that come out of being a good friend. And so this makes life more complex, but to me, it makes it much more intriguing. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, I want to dig into kind of the concept of free traits a little bit more. But before we do, you, you know, you touched briefly on kind of this concept of the biogenic nature. And I want to zoom out and, and examine, you know, you've, you've kind of talked previously about the three different natures, biogenic and sociogenic, etc. Would you kind of explain that framework and why that's important in sort of understanding personality? Yeah, thanks for that, because it's a really important um, distinction, I believe. We've moved way beyond the uh, nature-nurture debate of what I would have been exposed to as an undergraduate. Um, We now know that one uh, has one's nature nurtured, that their genetic expression is uh, contingent upon context, and certainly in intrauterine life, there are influences from external influences that will shape the expression of genes. And so we can't simply talk about something that is purely nature or purely nurture. That said, I think it's useful when we talk about traits to talk about the biogenic influences on them. And so we know, for example, that some of the personality characteristics, particularly openness to experience and extroversion, are linked to dopaminergic pathways in the in in the brain and the reactivity. Other aspects, the the more stabilizing aspects of conscientiousness and so on, uh, seem to be more related to the serotonergic pathways. There are also some influence and and some research, not all of which is concurs with with other research. So there's still a bit of of um, complexity in it about the. Uh, molecular genetics of personality and various SNPs and sorts that will shape our lives. That has not been as cumulatively impressive as it was originally thought. But I think that there is no doubt that there is a biogenic base to personality. That's the base that we may act against um, when we're deliberately trying to shape our own lives, or we can act in accordance with it. But uh, let's take extroversion as an example. We can clearly examine and and lay out the biogenic influences on on extroversion, as I mentioned. Um, um, But there are also sociogenic influences on the expression of behavior that is regarded as extroverted. Some cultures place a premium on extroverted conduct. Others place a premium on more introverted conduct. And for example, when people in some Asian countries are talking about problems their kids have in school, they're worried that their kids are too extroverted and they want to become more introverted because the norm there is a more introverted norm. Whereas in North America, uh, uh, it's typically the opposite. That that is the concern of the uh, parents. So we have biogenic, we have sociogenic influences upon um, our behavior, and they meet, as it were, in the idiogenic, and that's from the same root as the word idiosyncrasy, is is the particular singular aspect of your own behavior. And I think it's important. And so let me just preface some further comments on that by saying that in personality psychology, we study the way in which each of us, each of the listeners here, is like all other people. 
like some other people and like no other person. And so the idiogenic source of our personality are the singular pursuits, projects, the commitments that you make in your life. And I believe that all three of these influences play out as important factors in shaping our lives. And so as you move through your, uh, your profession, as you try to improve yourself, as many of your listeners are, are motivated to do, we can look at the, the dance, as it were, between your biogenic propensities, the sociogenic constraints within which you work, and the idiogenic projects, commitments, concerns that really motivate you, that make you distinctive among all the other people in your life. And I think that if we ignore any of those roots, we'll miss something really important. It's funny, I would often, before my classes, I would meet with, with them and I, they'd be milling around before class and I got into the habit of saying, uh, so how's it going? And the answer was always fine. And so the next day, how's it going? Fine. And every day it was the same routine. And one day I came in and I said, how's it going? And the response was fine. And I just said, I looked at the student. I said, no, really, how's it going? And that no, really, was really an opening to discourse and exchange of ideas and and what really concerned them that was was very very rewarding both for them and for me because i genuinely was interested in how they're doing and so the the response would be oh really uh, uh, terrible my my girlfriend's gone to stanford and left me again and i think the multivariate statistics was designed to suck the very soul out of me and they get into things that are singular about your girlfriend leslie um distinctive about how you find stats difficult and that allows me to understand them way more than if i were to simply look at their scores on big five personality traits so i guess one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm crafting here is, is the argument that traits are a necessary way of understanding human personality, but, it's, but they're insufficient. There are these other ways in which you're like no other person, the distinctive Bodnarian aspects of Matt that I think are really important to take into account. Else or else we just stick you in a category, put you in a in um, a pigeonhole, and I'm not even sure pigeons uh, belong in those pigeonholes. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. 
LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So in, in some sense, by the way, I love that phrase, the Bodnerian aspects of math. That's a good one. <laughs> um, but rather than sort of this black and white conception of an individual as kind of a collection of or sort of a bag of traits, it's a really a much more complicated kind of mix of biological factors, social impacts, and also kind of individual desires, goals, and, and experiences. That's right. How do you see sort of agency or, you know, individual agency and sort of control kind of playing into how we can shape our own personalities and how it kind of interacts with this stew of factors? That's a, a really great question. That that could take us three hours. But let me compress it into two minutes, eight seconds. Agency is really a crucial concept to invoke when you're trying to explain the shape of human lives. That, and this is where the idiogenic sources is, is highlighted, that earlier perspectives on human personality would argue that uh, we're simply the, um, the victim of our biogenics or a pawn shaped by the sociogenic influences in our lives. But I've argued for many years, and there are certainly other theorists as well, Al Benjura, perhaps most, well, certainly and most uh, famously, in the field of psychology who have argued that we are uh, not pawns, but agents, that we craft our lives in ways that transcend the forces that arise out of our biologies and our, and our cultural shaping, that there are, as it were, fates beyond traits. And I believe that agency, the active shaping of our lives, which is what I mean by agency, is a necessary way of, of understanding why individuals do what they do. I think it is an important stance to take in our lives to feel that we can shape things, that we're not victims, but that we can shape our, our lives. But I also believe that we can overdo in our expectation that we can invariably shape whatever it is we want. One of the things that I emphasize when I'm talking about people's personal projects is that they be based on reasonable appraisal of the ecosystem in which they're working. And by that, I mean that if you are not aware that there are legitimate constraints upon your behavior, legitimate in the sense that these are reality constraints, that no amount of wishing and no amount of agential optimism can subvert, that you need to take these into account when you're shaping um, as best you can your, your life. And this is a kind of reality test. And uh, sometimes it's really difficult 
to tell students, for example, the, the course that they're trying to plot might work, but a much better one in which they can be truly excellent is this one instead. And many people, I think, find themselves hooked on to a particular desired identity in the future without sufficiently checking into alternatives that could bring them the joy and the sense of efficacy and the sense of joy that they wish. And therefore, they can actually squander their 20s by pursuing something which would be better off downplayed and explore other alternatives. And I think a good a good teacher will provide those alternative paths to people who are stumbling on the paths that they're currently exploring. A good parent will do that with their kids. And a good friend will do that when you say, so I'm going to do X. And you wonder if in fact, this is such a good idea. Go for it is very rewarding as a, as a thing to say to a friend, but only, but all too often, it's a cheap way out of um, not really being a friend because you realize that there may be alternatives to that action that would be better off given the person's natural talents. And we all have talents that can uh, create successful lives for us if only we would explore them instead of getting bogged down in less fruitful ones. You know, it's funny. I think in, in many ways you're echoing a theme that we hear repeatedly on the show, which is this idea that sort of accepting and, and facing reality as it is, rather than sort of as you want it to be, in, including, you know, the self-awareness of looking at your own kind of limitations and weaknesses is, is really an essential component of, of success. Absolutely. It's very interesting that as a professor, I find that the hardest lecture I give is on this topic, because students uh, want to be told that they want to have reinforced what they've learned, that there's nothing you can't do if you want it enough and work hard enough at it. And I wish this were so. I would love to play in the World Cup, but I'm a little too old <laughs> and I have no football skill. But I can certainly become the most astute observer of the World Cup in Canada, where I'm from. And uh, if we can find alternatives to the uh, projects that we want to pursue, that are more viable, this is highly desirable. In fact, I've reached the conclusion that human well-being, success in terms of the show's themes, depends on the sustainable pursuit of core projects in our lives. And a core project is a project which, if you woke up without it tomorrow morning, if it were no longer there for whatever reason, you may wonder whether you should carry on at all. These are the things that ground us. The philosopher Bernard Williams called these ground projects. These are things that are the greatest source of meaning to us in our, in our lives. For many of us, it's, it's family and the love of spouse. And for others, it, it is their profession. But a core project has to be sustainable. In one way, it can be sustainable. The, the sustainable pursuit can be maintained if you have sufficient internal motivation and if you realistically examine your ecosystem, which goes to your point, Matt, that if you really don't think that there is a barrier there, and there is, and you get, as the British say, gobsmacked by reality, it can really unhinge you 
And I think we need to be more cautious and discerning in the things we undertake by looking at the possible uh, difficulties. And indeed, there's some exciting research out of um, Columbia University on precisely how envisaging these barriers to project or goal pursuit may enhance your ability to to cope with them and to uh, bring them uh, through to completion. So this is kind of a, a two-part question, but what shapes our, our sort of selection of our core projects? And then also, how can we kind of select the right kinds of core projects for ourselves with the perspective in mind of what we've talked about in terms of, you know, sort of sustainability and internal motivation and, and an assessment of our own sort of place within that kind of stew or that ecosystem of, of various factors? Yeah. This is a hard question, and it's one that I don't have uh, an answer to that satisfies me yet, but I can give you a few directions that I've been going over the years and in trying to grapple with it. I think the question of, of how do we choose the core projects goes to the whole question of, of our biogenic natures. I think that we are naturally predisposed to being attracted to things that uh, become our specialty. And that if we we look at little kids who suddenly begin, become excited by um, animals and they, they fantasize about, um, about animals and they, they develop a really discerning orientation to them, or sports or friendships, uh, these natural dispositions that we don't borrow from our cultural scripts, but are just naturally oriented to. I think are the first line of influence that help shape what will become a core project. Getting social validation for them in terms particularly of having them modeled by people you admire. This can be ranging from your parents to individuals who are become your mentors. This can make you suddenly gulp and say, yes, yes, what Rajit has been doing is exactly what I want to do. And, and I'm going to internalize that as a core project in, in my life. So I think that, again, I, I love your invoking of the word stew. I think that out of the stew emerge biogenically influenced, but also socially and culturally shaped aspirations, the ideal me, the possible self that I could be in the future that is anchored in a core project. When I talk to clinicians who have worked within the kind of framework I've been looking at with core projects, they say that individuals who lack any core project in their life, who are equally interested moderately in a whole bunch of things, don't fare as well. And when they do become committed to a project that trumps everything else, meaning in their life is enhanced and and the clinical picture becomes more optimistic. So I think that the sustainable pursuit of core projects is vital. The way in which we get those core projects, how they are shaped, um, or more challengingly, how they arise in the first place is on the agenda for my colleagues and students over the next uh, few decades more. This is a change in direction, but I, I'm curious, and, and I think it kind of ties back into this in some ways. When you talk about, and you've sort of previously written about the myth of authenticity, can you tell a little bit more about what that means and, and how that kind of interacts with what we've been talking about? Yes, the myth of authenticity. One of the 
influences that really shaped my early development in, in the study of personality was by a psychologist who should be read much more than he is, but he's quite famous among personality researchers by the name of George Kelly, he was an American, who wrote um, about the psychology of personal constructs. In one of his books, he talked about how insipid was the admonishment to be yourself. And he, he said that I can't think of anything much more boring than being yourself. It's a very boring way of living your life. Let's try to see what you might become that's different. Let's look at alternative construals of oneself. And I remember that sort of interesting me at the time. And then it coming up again when we see this whole business about authenticity, which is very hot in the management literature right now and the organizational behavior literature. And the, the notion that it is really crucial for a young manager, for example, to be authentic in her or his management style. And I remember a, a wonderful depiction of this as, as um, something that sounds great, but can actually really, really backfire. And the example in the, in the Harvard Business Review was of a, a person who said, yeah, I'll be authentic. I happen to be a woman. I want to uh, let my staff know that I'm scared. I'm vulnerable. I feel really nervous when I'm um, speaking to the board. And she did. And it ended up that this, rather than this authenticity, bolstering her management credibility, lowered it. And it would have been better, according to the analysis, had, had she not given in to the authenticity of her biogenic nature, but idiogenically, in terms of the goal that she had, to act in a way that was uh, more assertive and confident and self-efficacious. And so your, your listeners may be saying, you know, maybe I should just be natural and be authentic by being, you know, not very agreeable. I'm a disagreeable person. Really being, spending most of my time playing games on my computer. Yeah, I'm not conscientious, but man, I'm really, really authentic in missing deadlines uh, because that's me. This is the authentic me. With bud, you get bud. You don't get somebody else. I'm an authentic slob. And that is not likely to wax well for bud because um, succeeding in life, I think, requires that we adopt core projects that shape us in ways that are uh, not just socially desirable, that would be rather superficial, but lead on to greater fortune, lead on to productivity, lead on to exciting new ventures. And so you may be, you may regard authenticity as something which reflects only your true biogenic you. But I think this is misleading. I don't think you should just naturally be yourself except perhaps with your dearest friend, where we say, yeah, now I can really be you. I can be me and you can be you and we can hang out together and, and let everything uh, just be natural. But there is another kind of authenticity and it's, it, it is showing adherence to and respect for your core aspirations in your life. And it may mean that some people may see you as being a little, little bit disingenuous. 
But on the other hand, acting out a character in the way we've been discussing it can also lead to real change. It can also mean that you become that which you're posing. And that can be liberating for creating new paths in our lives. So for listeners that want to sort of concretely implement some of the ideas that we've talked about today, what would be kind of an action item or a piece of homework that you would give them to start implementing some of the things we've discussed? I'm a big believer in the effectiveness of of self-change projects. One thing that's worth mentioning is that when individuals take on a a desire to, to change, in, in the way that the, the philosophy of your, of your whole podcast is about constructive personal change that will lead to greater success, the origin of that project is really important. For example, if you're very introverted, as, as I am biogenically, and you want to become more extroverted, then it really helps to practice this. Uh, practice it in, in small settings first. Try speaking up at a, at a meeting where it's not too threatening to do that or uh, and expand that and gradually build up from small stars, small wins, as we call it, to more challenging uh, approaches. Now, if you initiated it, it's much more likely to go well than if it were forced upon you by somebody else. So if somebody says to you, Doug, you've really got to be more outgoing starting next Thursday, man. That is less likely to be successful than if Doug himself chooses that project after a degree of reflection. And so those who are listening who want to work on enhancing their social repertoire uh, by becoming more agreeable but retaining the capacity to be disagreeable when it's warranted, to be both extroverted and more introverted, depending on the context that you're in, to be stable emotionally, but to see the value of being sensitive and hypersensitive, which more neurotic people feel. You can mount these uh, experiments. They can can be self-change experiments that you may start off slowly, and it'll maybe take, the first one will be a week. And for this week, You're going to move in a direction on the big five or any other desirable change that you want that is a step in in the right direction. And then uh, reflect on it at the end of the week and see, well, boy, that was tough, but the feedback I got was really terrific or that really sucked. And the feedback I got was what on earth is up with you? Well, then you may have to shape that back a bit. Now, here's where getting some professional help and counseling help is always a a good idea. But I find that that people are able to do these little short-term experiments, uh, what George Kelly, who I mentioned before, called fixed role explorations, where you try out a new way of behaving, and then you monitor the effect that it has. And uh, this can be quite liberating. And particularly if you have a community of people who know that's what you're doing. I don't think this has to be done by stealth. You say, okay, (laughs) I'm not that agreeable a person. In fact, people have called me the seventh most disagreeable person in New York. But I think that it's getting me into difficulty. I know it's not good for my health to constantly piss people off. And so for the next week, I'm going to try doing things. And if you catch me being agreeable and pleasant, and it doesn't seem phony, let me know, because I'm going to do this for a week. If people were able to do those short-term experiments, self-change experiments, uh, I think that would be a good concrete way 
in which you could change the the trajectory you're on right now. And for listeners who want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you and your various books, et cetera, online? You can, at all major book dispensers, uh, you can get a book called Me, Myself, and Us, The Science of Personality and the Art of Well-Being. The other book uh, for those with shorter attention spans is called Who Are You Really? The Surprising uh, Puzzle of Personality. And it's based on my uh, TED Talk uh, 2016 by the same title. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the Science of Success, sharing all of your incredible wisdom and stories. It was a fascinating conversation, really, really interesting, and very much appreciate you joining us on the show. Thank you. Delighted. And your podcast is vitally important, and I'm just delighted to have participated in it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.